morning. This is a telephone company. Due to repairs, we're giving you advance notice that your service will be cut off indefinitely at 10 o'clock. That's two minutes from now. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. And sometimes the 70s television detective show, Richie Brockelman, Private Eye. Right. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm the Richie Brockelman to Nathan Paletta, Epidiah <laughs> Ravishaw. I don't know. I mean, are we going by wisdom or by age? Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, I'm I'm the I'm the Brockelman to your Rockford. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I'll give you that. I've got I've got a little more. I got a few <laughs> more years on you. You have a little more experience under your belt. Yeah. As you may have picked up, we are going to be talking about uh season 4, episode 21. The House on Willis Avenue. Yeah. Which is the first appearance of the character Richie Rockelman on The Rockford Files and was basically a pilot for the spinoff series starring Dennis Dugan as Richie Rockelman, Richie Rockelman, Private Eye, which ran for five episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think you can find some on YouTube. I I haven't tried. I'm sure it's possible. I think I've watched enough of one on YouTube to uh, to know that it's there. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, I, I am definitely curious enough that I will probably end up watching a Richie Brockelman uh, Private Eye at some point mm-hmm. if I can find it. Um, but yeah, this I feel like this episode has been like this has been on our horizon for a while. I feel like it's been a bit of a white whale <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> First of all. I think it's because it is squarely an issue episode Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, our other example of, of, of that, um, is, uh, so help me God. Yeah. Is so help me God, which we've talked about ad nauseum. So it's the other example for that kind of show. And I don't know. And it's a two parter. And sometimes it's like we put off putting two parters until we're like ready to spend the time with them. And we've had requests. We've had multiple requests to or suggestions to do this episode. Yeah. So we're doing it. And, and there are more Brockelman episodes, right? There's one more, which is another two-parter and actually one of my favorites, if I remember it right, which I, I have not rewatched it because I'm saving it for the show. But um, uh, Never Send a Boy King to Do right. a Man's Job, which is in the next yes. season. And I think that that's the, another reason why this has been on the horizon. Because I think we both felt we wanted to do this before we did that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So now we're doing it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the stars have aligned. Yes. So it's a bit of a misnomer to call it a two-parter. It's It was syndicated in two parts, but it's one continuous episode. It's an, it's an hour and a half yeah. mystery movie um, uh, episode of, of television. There's no spot in it that I felt... Um, like, oh, this is where you would mm-hmm. clearly start the next half of Yeah, the- I started kind of trying to find that spot, like, once I noticed it was getting up into the kind of, like, 50-minute yeah. area. Like, I wonder where they cut it for syndication. I'm sure we could find that somewhere, but uh, somewhere in there, I'm sure they split it. I did find a reference to when it's into syndication, it has a recap, right, at the beginning of the second oh, right. episode of the first episode. So, you know, maybe it splits a little light later closer yeah. to the 56 minute mark or whatever so that there's a little less airtime in that second episode so they can do the recap so there's a couple scenes at which it could split that are in there that would make sense but when you're viewing it as one show as we 
as it was on my Blu-rays, I assume it's the same on the DVD. Yeah, yeah. It just plays through. There's no, like, I'm James Garner, and here's what happened on the last episode. Yes. (laughs) And and there's no, uh, you know, like, how Gear Jammers significantly changes between the two. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's nothing like that, like, even plot twist-wise. It doesn't have story beats that Mm -hmm. tell you, now we're done with the first half, and now we're in the second half. It is one continuous show. Uh, which is fun. Um, nice change of pace. Uh, this episode is uh, was written by Stephen Cannell. Almost restrained to me, I think. Yeah. Again, the premise has that little outside-of-the-box premise that I associate with a lot of his stuff, but the actual procedural, here's what happens in the episode, is uh, it's very talky, Yeah, which is fine, because we love to hear these characters talk to each other, but it's uh, also just pretty straightforward yeah one of the things that i think it was kind of marked by i don't mean that in the bad way maybe i shouldn't say marked but like one of the things that uh i noted about it was that it was um a little more psychoanalytical about rockford than than we're used to which is good i mean we'll get into it but like richie makes a good mirror for rockford Mm -hmm. in 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 uh many ways and and they have like parallels in the story we're going to find out that they both have the same mentor and there's little bits where richie and rockford do the same things but in different Mm -hmm. ways and it's fun but they get into the rocky and rockford's relationship a bit uh, talking about like how rocky views the the idea of being a private eye because richie kind of (laughs) thinks jim's got it all and uh has the respect of the world when we know that that's not true and and yeah so there's just really interesting things going on there that i thought um definitely elevated the episode it feels a little uh i'm trying to think of the not a the first word i thought of was it feels a little uh, more adult but that's not mm-hmm. really the right word. It's a little more sophisticated, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, than, I don't know, some other episodes might be. And that's not a slam on other Rockford Files episodes. No. It's just like there's a quality of the writing where it's it, it is a you know it's a fun ride to just kind of watch the characters do their thing and listen to their banter. But then the, uh, the actual content of what they are saying, there's a lot of recursion. There's a lot of touching back on things that came up earlier and yeah. and mirroring themes and like pretty pretty strong handling of the language and the writing and the thematic content. Um, that really stands out against the backdrop of a fairly straightforward story, I think. Yeah. And I think that also contributes a little bit to, uh, the, the sort of like, well, how do they make this into two, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, cause it just feels of a piece. Like I was aware of the length, I think only because it was an assignment for us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I, I'm like, okay, I have this delightful thing in my life where I get to carve out time in my day to watch a Rockford files episode, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still carving out time in my day to do it. And, um, so I'm like, I, and I knew it was going to be a long one. So I had to carve out a bigger chunk of my day to do it. But I think if that weren't the case, if I had just put it in and sat down to watch it, I think I probably would have been at least two thirds, if not three fourths right. of the way through before I realized it was it was a long episode. I would have been an hour in and been like, this seems like it's a little long and then checked. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it's a it's a movie. Yeah, the whole style is is more more of a a, a feature film, uh, not visually, but the the way it, the the pacing, uh, if nothing else. Um, so that is all to say, it is a long episode. We are going to spend one episode on it of our show. So this one, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see how it comes out. Uh, but this one may be a little longer than usual. But it is also very talky. So we'll try not to get too bogged down in the weeds of who says what to who when. <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of detail. Uh, so this is a strong, if if you haven't seen this one and you're able to, and this sounds interesting, this is a strong, like, you should watch this one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, recommendation for sure. This episode is directed by Hai Overback. Uh I assume that is how you pronounce his name. This is his only Rockford Files episode, mm. uh, but he did direct two Columbos including one of my absolute favorites, A Stitch in Crime, which is the oh. Leonard Nimoy one. Oh. He also directed an, an episode of Murder, She Wrote, but was primarily, apparently, a MASH guy and directed oh, yeah. 20 episodes of MASH. And then just looking at his credits, um, so he was a director in the 70s and 80s. He was a producer of TV in the 60s, uh, including the F Troop uh, among other shows that maybe you'd heard of if you know more about 60s TV. Uh, and then he was an actor in the 50s. So that's a an interesting career progression to me. <laughs> Seems like an interesting guy that there isn't a whole lot about on the internet. So, okay, so here's the interesting thing about him. <laughs> as long as we're saying he's interesting and talking about interesting things. So he did Richie Brockelman, The Missing 24 Hours. Right, so that was a tv movie pilot that came out a year before yes so he did that before this episode which almost certainly is why he's doing this episode right like that 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 makes sense he did some maverick stuff oh Mm -hmm. interesting it's one of those like if you do the forensics of who was on what show when you can kind of see a story of him knowing you know the people that would bring him into the rockford world but yeah uh that's all i had to say about him the richie brockleman timeline is there's the there's the missing 24 hours that mm-hmm. aired the year previously. Then this is the last episode of the fourth season of the Rockford Files, uh, which airs at the beginning of 1978. And then Richie Brockman, Private Eye, played in the Rockford Files time slot, I guess, between now and when the fifth season started. And oh. it only ran for five episodes. So, you know, I guess it is what it is. That was a really interesting gambit they tried there. Yeah. And then he comes back. At the, I believe, at the end of the fifth season for the the other Rockford Files episode that he's in. That's delightful. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, that's a, probably enough preamble for what is going to be uh, a lot of show. But <laughs> thankfully, I would say we have a pretty uh, slight preview montage. If uh, you would like to take us through that, Epi. Uh, my notes on this one: car, gunfight, computers, helicopters. You're dealing with something way over your head. Yep. Yep. I mean, like the. Sounds about right. Someone, someone's been murdered. Someone's getting spied on. There's a helicopter. There's, there's a car chase. We've got a budget for this one, so mm-hmm. enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that brings us right into it. Hello, listeners. This is a quick break before we get into the episode to say thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. This show is free to all, but the support from patrons really goes a long way. So we always extend a special thanks to our gumshoes. This time, we say thank you to Chuck from WhatYou'reReading.com. Check out the site for reviews of books, games, movies, comics, and more. Paul Townend, who also recommends the podcast Fruit Loops, Serial Killers of Color, at FruitLoopsPod.com. Shane Liebling, you're playing games online, so check out his dice rolling app Roll for Your Party at RollForYear.Party. Jay Adon. 
Check out his amazing miniature painting skills over at jadon.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Dave P., Dale Church, and Dave Otterson. And finally, we cannot thank our detective patrons enough for their generous support. Big thanks to Kevin Brown, Eric Antenor, at Antenor on Twitter, Brian Pereira, at Thermoware, Bill Anderson, at BillAnd88, and of course, Richard Haddam, at Richard Haddam. We follow them too, at 200pod. Why become a patron for as little as $1 an episode? In addition to supporting the show and exclusive episode previews, our patrons get plus expenses. A bonus podcast where we casually chat about all the media we're currently enjoying and things going on in our lives. Help out the show by leaving a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend who you think would like it and check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. We start this episode at night uh, following an older guy walking through a construction site. He's being tailed by a security truck. Uh, we see kind of meander onto camera uh, as, as this guy goes through. And he uh, makes a call from a payphone to a very mustachioed man, I would say. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is, um, what's his name, from WKRP. Yes. Very mustachioed, I think was, would be the best way to describe him. Uh, Howard Hesseman is the actor. Yes. This episode does have a pretty good deal of seeing people before we learn what their names are. Right. So we'll, you know, just for ease of use, we will call people by their names that we learn later. But uh, so this is uh, uh, Al Stever is our mustachioed man with his little yippy dog, BB. <laughs> our guy on the phone is uh, saying that he's found something out and you're not going to believe it. It's spooky. Yeah. He wants to meet in an hour after checking out a couple more addresses. So they agree to meet in an hour. And then we see after he gets off the phone, our older guy gets pinned in by a couple approaching security vehicles and surrounded. I have a lot of notes in here of good banter. Mm. So if you ever have a thing where you want to call out some good language, a lot of good back and forth uh, between incidental characters, I would say. Yeah. But uh, this guy is taken to a big helicopter that is um, waiting outside of a construction company building. Once he is brought into the helicopter, we meet our, uh, essentially our villain of the piece who is waiting inside. His name is Garth McGregor, and he is played by uh, the wonderful Jackie Cooper. Instantly recognizable, uh, to me at least, as a Columbo fan, as he's been on... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> been a good Columbo episode. I feel like he's been on Rockford's. He has directed episodes. He's only made two appearances as an actor. Oh. But he directed uh, In Hazard, uh, The Italian Bird Fiasco, and Counter Gambit, which right. okay. we have all done. So we actually only have two episodes to go to do the Jackie Cooper cycle. Oh, nice. <laughs> so maybe we should think about that he is and always will be perry white in my head though. Right, he's right. The, from the original superman films mm-hmm. i shouldn't say original uh but the christopher reeve superman films um so the interior of this helicopter is nicely appointed yeah it was very luxurious <laughs> like the outside it looks like a military helicopter yeah and then inside it's like oh this is like a it's all plush and there's an armchair <laughs> I'll be I'll be honest when you started describing the scene I'm like yeah I'm with you I'm with you and then you talk about it being inside uh, the helicopter and my brain went trying to remember what that scene was because I'm I'm envisioning the insides of helicopters that I've seen in television throughout time but I was like no isn't this the scene that takes place inside the yacht 
No, no, that is a helicopter. That's what's happening here. This helicopter is the equivalent of a yacht. Yeah. In other places. Yeah. So uh, we, we establish him on the phone and he's talking to someone um, and he says, go kiss a baby. Leave this to me. Yeah. Which I wrote <laughs> down because it's a fun phrase, but that's actually foreshadowing the person he's talking to. Go kiss a baby. Clearly a politician. Right. Like they're, they're letting us know that dirty politics are, are involved in whatever is going on in this construction site. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our older guy has been poking around and uh, McGregor wants to set him straight and see if they can uh, come to some kind of agreement and maybe make him right. And then we fade out as the helicopter takes off. Our older man, I think, is very suspicious of anything oh, yeah. being put to right here. <laughs> He's clearly not having it, but he also has no power in this situation. Yeah, when, they, when they're ready to take off, he's like, well, I need a parachute. It's uh, ominous. So we fade out from that and then fade in to Jim and Rocky in the trailer. And Jim is getting dressed up because he's going to a funeral. Yep. This whole conversation is in the context of Jim looking for his wallet and getting increasingly agitated that he can't find it while Rocky waxes philosophical about death. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Just going on and on about the older you get, the more you go to. And then you stop going to it for a while (laughs) and just... (laughs) grim rocky well and then he has his whole thing about his the red fords the red fords <laughs> now take automobiles supposing detroit was to build a hundred thousand red fords well at the end of five years you're gonna lose half of them red fords they'll be in the wrecking yard then five years later another 30 percent of them are going to be gone because of accidents or or bad driving well that means that after that time is all over you're going to have a couple of hundred red fords that because it was put together good and driven carefully are going to be around forever i'm looking for my wallet rocky is it on the desk you know it wouldn't hurt you none to put your own ford in neutral the way you're always chasing around and working on one dangerous case or another Okay, so a couple of things I love about this. Number one, like this just feels so I've in my teenage years having conversations with friends who had brand identity with <laughs> certain cars or whatever would have things like this. They'll say, I mean, this kind of reminds me when uh, out back of my house, I have a shed that's just rotting. It's falling apart. And humble brag. Yeah, humble brag. Um, when my father-in-law sees it, or uh, there's a few other people that have seen it, they're like, oh, this has got good bones. Like, you never want something with good bo- You don't get anything with good bones. Good bones <laughs> don't help you. And this is this is what this, I, I don't know, this, this car thing reminds me of is like, yeah, no, most of them fall apart or whatever, but then the ones that don't, that's, that's why you buy a red Ford. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> but then the other part, and this is the part that I love, is that it's a red Ford. Right. The most inconsequential detail about these Fords, but is important that we know that they're red because that's the one that um, Rocky has, I think, right? Uh, yeah, I assume that is trucks of Ford. I actually do not know. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> As inveterate not car guys, we will have yes. to go to the uh, Rockford Files files to double check. But uh, through this monologue, this is all part of the slowing down that he wants Jim to do is because he doesn't seem to have time for Rocky anymore. He doesn't have time to go fishing, doesn't have time to come over all those kinds of things and then uh jim is getting increasingly irritable and he asks why he's so riled up and it's because jim just doesn't like funerals yeah but this is special uh is more than a friend this is a funeral for joe tooney who taught jim things that kept him alive the first two years he was in the business 
we get the line that we'll come back to over and over, which is uh, what he was doing on that freeway. I just don't know. He never drove on the freeway. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make sense that he got in a car crash on the freeway. Jim finds his wallet finally in the drawer of his desk that Rocky has been blocking by sitting there and talking at him the whole time. And, uh... has an appropriate quip about, ah, right there in the glove box, continuing our car right. uh, metaphor. I was just going to say about the freeway thing, there's this is lovely bit where he says something about him being able to go across the town on surface streets faster than anybody on the freeway. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's important that he's not on the freeway, and it's important that we, we nail that home. But what I love about that line and the way that does that is that feels like something that Jim would aspire to. Yes. Or yeah. see heroic in a human being right like it it it, it's not just like we need to do this to get the plot through it also exposes a little bit about jim and uh the kind of person he is and and also shows us that this why this person was a mentor to jim i also really appreciate that he specifically says that the things he learned kept him alive the first two years he was in the business yeah (laughs) Then, you know, then he figures some stuff out for himself. But those first couple of years, he really needed the help. Well, and that mirrors a bit the Red Ford Mm -hmm. thing that um, Rocky was talking about. Like, if they get past this certain line, they'll go on forever. Is Joe Tooley the reason why Jim was able to get past that certain line and can now, as Rocky puts it, rack up 100,000 miles on his dash? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I think the implication is he was. Yeah. So we do go to a church for the service, and it's a room full of PIs. Have you ever seen so many PIs in one place? But we we come into hearing an argument from the back pews where, who's starting to feel like an old friend of ours. Yes. Vern St. Cloud. My notes are, wait, I know that voice. Uh, is yelling at a a fresh-faced young fellow next to him who, you know, is the Richie Brockleman we've been talking so much about, yelling at him loudly to shut up and not disrupt a service. <laughs> and Richie inching away from him. <laughs> so we last saw Vern in our episode 62, Sticks and Stones May Break Your Bones, But Waterbury Will Bury You, which we did a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> um and that was a, a, a PI team assemble episode. We've been kind of going back in time with him because we first saw him in one of the uh, in one of the Lance White episodes. When oh, yeah. The like detective like award conference or whatever. Yeah. So this is a recurring character uh, in the Rockford Files of this like noir era PI kind of yeah. persona. Like, meh, see, meh. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> language and delivery uh who is clearly over the hill in terms of his i don't know skills or what he brings to the table but not willing to let go of the one thing he knows which is this private investigator lifestyle yeah he's he's got a little bit of a angel desperateness coming off of him because he's always he's doing the same thing where he's he's always looking for an angle and then just assuming everyone else is also looking right. for that same angle and that's how they're all operating mm-hmm. yeah no uh he's great and i'm actually really glad i mean obviously you said it, we did this last year which means we did this a thousand years ago but um <laughs> i'm glad we did that episode before we did this one because uh of having a good introduction to him but also uh, the, the the pi world that, that that is rockford's uh greater community that we don't get a whole lot of all the time but right. like when they do show up i really enjoy it 
Yeah. And so if you're, you know, watching this at the time, you would have seen Vern, again, a year ago, or a year and a half ago, I guess. The middle of season three is when Sticks and Stones uh, came out. So, you know, if you were a longtime Rockford Files fan, you would have seen mm-hmm. this character before, though it may have been a while since since the last time. He is a memorable character, is, is the point. Mm-hmm. Um, we cut to uh, Richie talking to the widow of uh, Joe Tooley, talking to her about how Joe was the main reason that he is doing what he's doing, how he got into the PI business. Um, I think establishing for us that this guy, Joe Tooley, was his mentor, right? So it's immediately giving us the, you know, we are viewing a version of Jim's past in a way uh, with this with this character. But he gets around to asking if Joe was working on anything and he offers to help straighten anything out that might have been left hanging by this, this sad event. Uh, but his widow says that he wasn't working on anything, just didn't have any cases. He was retired, uh, but he was just keep doing a little work around the environmental impact in some housing starts in the canyons, just helping a friend out. Um, he then gets interrupted by Vern coming in to accuse him of trying to basically pick the bones, uh, trying to steal the cases from, from poor, yes. poor dead Joe. This happens in the foreground as we see Jim pass them. We see Jim notice them having this conversation. And then mm-hmm. we focus on Jim going to talk to a couple of his other PI buddies. And they kind of are swapping stories about Joe and saying how sad it was and all this stuff. Uh, I didn't note it at the time because I thought it was just chatter. But then it turns out it's important later. So I came right, back yeah. to make the note. Uh, one of them mentions how Joe, uh, he got around well or whatever, considering his leg. He stepped on a landmine in World War II, I think. Um, in France. So his leg was injured, but uh, he had like a pin in it and got around fine or something like that. So I had the opposite reaction to this. Okay. Where uh, when when he said it, I, I noted it right away and I was like, this feels important. Here's a weird detail. Yeah, it, it stands out both in this episode and in the Rockford Files where something important doesn't also do other duty. Like mm-hmm. this might just be, we need you to know this so that when it comes up later, uh, later on it comes up and it's reiterated a few times. And the idea that Joe would tell this story over and over mm-hmm. is important as well to, to the character of Joe. So eventually, uh, but at the moment I thought, eh, this feels vaguely sloppy just to drop this mm-hmm. clue, you know, in the open. But I think you had the reaction that the writers would have wanted the audience to have. Mm-hmm. But uh, we learned that the that, that Joe was on the freeway and he got hit by a gas truck, um, which sounds mm-hmm. awful, uh, but it's strange. It's not just that he avoided highways out of preference. He also had bad eyesight. And so he didn't want to be on the highway, especially at night, considering his eyesight. Yes. It, this little conversation continues uh, as various PI buddies have to go and, and you know, get about their days. Uh, and then we see one of the guys see Vern. Oh, here comes St. Clara. I got to get out of this Hey, Sam! How you doing, Rockford? Getting any? <laughs> so we cut from there to Joe Tooley's office, which we know because of his name on the uh, on the glass, mm-hmm. uh, where Jim is picking the lock. And I feel like he goes into this room, and I have a note of, like, we've definitely seen this set before. Possibly in Waterbury yeah. for <laughs> the other dead P.I.'s office that <laughs> they have to go into. <laughs> like, it just seems very familiar. Um, we 
kind of cut back and forth a little bit, but basically Jim goes into this office and then we cut to this establishing shot of a light flashing. And then there's a guy on a headset in this big room full of computers. Oh, I love it. I mean, it's essentially a, a, it's a headquarters. It's a monitoring facility of some sort, but yeah. We're going to come back to this location over and over. So, you know, it's the the computer room. Yes. And it's always this guy who's going to be on the headset and he responds to everything with Wilco. Yes. (laughs) Maybe we'll call him Wilco. I love seeing this old computer tech uh, with the spinning reel to reels Mm -hmm. and, and the massive amount and just knowing that the device that I used to like, you know, oh no, actually I wouldn't, I've watched this on a DVD player, Never mind. But like, you know, my phone having <laughs> more computing capacity than that entire room, mm-hmm. just, yeah, ah. it's wild. <laughs> I think as time goes on, it gets more and more cute. Like, oh, it's yeah. adorable. <laughs> <laughs> Look at all those giant computers that co- probably cost millions of dollars. But at what cost? But at what cost? That's what this episode's about. That's true. <laughs> um, so the, uh, this light flashes. Our, our guy, um, he's like an operator from the Matrix. He's always answering the thing and then dispatching stuff. Um, so he, he makes yeah. a call uh, that someone's kicked off a dormant mic and it has a 1016 code. So they have to notify uh, someone important, you know, record and relay, put it on tape. And then we see a car peeling out of a parking garage. Uh, before we go back to Jim, he keeps poking around and he finds a folder underneath the blotter mm-hmm. with some some papers in it, including one that says the expenses for the Albert Stever case <laughs> and a index card that says 1414 Willis Avenue. And then our title credit comes up over the card. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> and the credits slowly play over the course of the rest of the scene. Jim leaves, uh, and we have a great transition shot where he gets into an elevator, the camera stays there, the other elevator opens, and Vern St. Cloud gets out of the other elevator. It's such a good gag. I think I was expecting the gag, but I was expecting it to be the, um, at this point, I'm thinking they're feds, but I'm wrong about that. But the I'm expecting it to be this car that has mm-hmm. come out, right? I'm not expecting Vern, and I'm I'm super excited to see what happens next. Because as soon as we see Vern, we know exactly what's going to happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Vern uh, goes him himself. Um, he leaves his lockpicks sticking out of the lock. <laughs> so sloppy. <laughs> So he mirrors what Jim does. Jim goes in, he opens the drawer, he lifts a bottle of liquor and kind of like does a little smile like, oh, Joe, and then puts it back and then he starts rifling around. Vern comes in, he leaves his lockpicks in the door handle. He takes the bottle of liquor out, takes a swig of it and puts it in his pocket (laughs) (laughs) and then doesn't seem to find anything. He looks disappointed. Uh, He makes a phone call to like check his messages or something and says it's a bust. And, uh, you know, there's nothing there. So we're cutting back and forth with the car approaching while Vern's doing this. Yes. And then, then he makes a, a call to Tennessee uh, to his brother. Uh, I'm assuming because it's going to be on someone else's dime because it's a long yeah. distance call. Uh, my notes were just like, you just knew he was going to make a long distance call. He's just <laughs> watching him get comfortable with the room. You're like, okay, it's not a thing we think about anymore. But back then. You, if somebody was like, can I borrow your phone? Nowadays, you're like, yeah, but don't look through the photos on it. <laughs> like, But back then, it would be like, yeah, but don't make a long-distance call. So while he's uh, yelling with his brother, or right mm-hmm. after, uh, finally our two guys with guns bust their way in, 
Vern tries to blather, says that uh, Mrs. Tooley asked him to come down, make sure all the cases are up to date, etc. What she for, she she forgot that she has a spare key and they like have his <laughs> lockpicks that he left in the door. <laughs> he does ask if they're cops and they do not respond, but they make a call saying we got a gopher and upgrade surveillance to one A. We may still be in trouble here. There's also a great line where I don't know if he he gets Vern's business card or something, but he just says, "What is a Vern St. Cloud?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't note his name. I don't think we hear it till almost the end of the episode, but there's like a main goon who's kind of a lieutenant in this organization, as we'll learn. And he's the balder one. Um, <laughs> his name's BJ. His character's name is BJ. Okay. He has the extremely dry delivery mm-hmm. and actually combines really well with everyone else with uh, lots of good gags in the line deliveries and stuff because he's so dry we go to richie at the uh morgue files and records desk and we get to see richie brockelman run a con yes i refer to this as an aw shucks routine Mm -hmm. where he is posing as a claim life insurance claim adjuster and he needs to see the coroner's report uh because and he has this whole long backstory about the new president of the company who made an accidental approved an accidental payout to someone who wasn't actually dead and so it's a new policy and you know it's the the richie version of the uh jim just a working man routine i had it as the beleaguered working stiff act Right. But this version is, it's a little, cause he's so young, right? So he's like 23, I think they yeah. establish, you know, so he's so young. So a lot of, a lot of his approach is acting like he is like new and just trying to get along and, right. you know, just trying to please everyone. And he just needs a little bit of help, which works for him. I'm not even certain the file's still down here. Hey, I... I know it's a pain, but the thing of it is, is if I don't get a look at that thing, I can't file a claims report. And old Mr. Schusterfeld is not going to approve the payment. And I got to tell you, of all the claims this company should pay quickly, this is right at the top of the list. You see, well, Mrs. Tooley, she's out at the Spring Garden Hospital. It's an old folks home. There's a $4,000 bill due, and they're about to pitch her out onto the street, which is okay, I guess, except for the fact that She's a paraplegic, and she needs a place with ramps for her wheelchair, which lets out most of your inexpensive houses. Let me take a look. I, I love how this mirrors what we've seen in Jim mm-hmm. over the years. Um, and exactly what you were saying, like, it's it's the version that works for him because he's younger than Jim. He's not, you know, he doesn't have Jim's smile. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, certain things that he that Jim can do that he can't do. But the other part about it that I I assume is intentional, but I just love is that it's also a little too complex. Yeah. You feel like that that's part of him being new at the game as well, like building too much scaffolding into his life. Yeah, there's too much detail. Yeah. And and you kind of feel like, like, I think there's a moment in here where I was ready for the guy to be like, this is ridiculous. Right. But I think the strategy is he just keeps on he he has more story every time there's a question yeah he has more story and more story and finally the guy obviously just to get him to shut up is like you know what fine i'll see if i can find it yes whatever it takes to get you to stop telling me this boring story he is he's really good with the blather he just can barf it uh so he does find it and we see richie uh looking at an x-ray before we go on to our next scene and i did not 
in this moment catch why that was important, which I, I feel I that was one of the moments where I, I, I was kicking myself later because I mm. we'd listened to the whole thing about having a pin in his leg. I made a note of it saying this is important. And then when we get an x-ray of the leg, <laughs> it doesn't occur to me that that's important. To be fair, at least from where I was sitting, it was a piece of floppy, plasticky black paper. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, that is an x-ray. But it's not like they show right. it's a close-up of it being the leg or something like that. But yes, this will come back uh, again later with combined with other information that we that we have been tipped off to. Um, we then go to a uh, some kind of civil government meeting where Al Stever is yelling at County Supervisor Nardoni. Nardoni makes a point of saying that Stever has accused him of every underhanded thing in the book. Yeah. You know, this is a long going uh, uh, issue between the two of them. But Stever wants to know why the lots in Dead Rock Canyon are getting cut up. It's uh, supposed to be a wilderness protection area and no housing supposed to be there without a full hearing. And they start getting into county codes and then we we, we fade out of their audio. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so first, there's applause from the audience after Stever makes his point about there's supposed to be a full hearing for new housing yeah. developments. So the people are on his side. I think that's yeah. what we need to know from here. And then uh, we we fade out of their dialogue as Jim slips into the back and ends up sitting down next to Richie. Uh <laughs> watching this um altercation it's clear as jim is slipping in that he recognizes richie and that's why this isn't a coincidence i mean it's probably it's not a coincidence that they're both there but it's not a coincidence that he sat down next to him yeah he he didn't go there to find richie but since he sees richie there he goes to sit by him yeah yeah and introduces himself and (laughs) richie says jim rockford the jim rockford the the famous private eye he just seems pleased as punch just to be in the presence um, as we go back to Nardoni saying that this is over, you don't even live in my district. Right. <laughs> he has Stever ejected uh, by the security detail that's in the room, and he literally gets hauled out yelling. So we, we follow Richie and Jim as they leave the hearing. Richie continues to be overwhelmed by how great it is to meet Jim, and he talks about how famous he is and starts talking <laughs> about cases. Well, okay. So two things. First of all, I want I want to know because my impression at this point is I, I cannot tell if Richie is being sincere. I think mm. after having watched the whole episode, he is. Mm. But like in the moment, I'm like, is he buttering Jim up? And it definitely works to butter Jim up. Like you could see it on Jim's face. Like he is loving it that, that somebody <laughs> is a fan. Mm-hmm. He specifically references how he uh, busted the trucking scandal. Yes. It has to be gear jammers, right? Yes. This is our first real conversation with the two of them. They don't they didn't know each other before this episode, right? So Jim asks Richie why he's there. Richie starts talking about how Joe was a good friend. He's the reason he's a PI now, and he has this whole long winded thing about their relationship and how much he appreciated him and everything. And this all winds up with Jim. Yeah, all of which doesn't answer the question. Oh, you noticed. Yes. So they're not just talking. They're also feeling each other out, right? Yeah. Getting a sense for what each other's like bits are, their gambits, uh, you know, conversationally. But there's there's like legitimate um, admiration there. I think Mm -hmm. you get the feeling that this is the same thing as any other technical expert when they're talking to someone and that person says something that only someone in their field 
mm-hmm. then they're like, wait a minute. Like, you know what you're talking. Okay. All right. We can talk on this different level or mm-hmm. something like that. And th- that's what this, this felt like, which was nice. Richie is there because someone was hit by a truck, but not necessarily Joe Tooley. And he keeps calling it murder. And Jim's like, yes. wait, why do you keep, you know, why are you saying murder? That you know, That's an important <laughs> word. And he brings up that the, the leg thing and that there's no pin in the x-ray from the morgue file yes it's all coming together it's all coming together you know if they're both working on the same thing maybe they can pool resources Mm -hmm. and jim asks if richie has a client no he doesn't have a client but joe tooley i guess he's kind of my client in absentia um (laughs) and jim says that he doesn't you know he doesn't have anything he just has a hunch yes so he's there because he found the expense sheet and also he found joe's glasses on his desk not only why would he drive on the freeway at all let alone at night let alone without his glasses maybe he had two pairs well i called his wife and he only had one pair of glasses Mm -hmm. good old jim covering all his bases actually doing the the work um the 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 key exchange here towards the end richie has some you know maybe this happened maybe that this happened well would you like a few more maybes yeah well maybe joe exaggerated about his war injury maybe the guys down at the morgue put the wrong x-rays and toolies file maybe it's just hard to bury a friend maybe we're just trying to keep him alive by working on this ah then you are working on it yes <laughs> so we get to see the the determination at the heart of richie brockelman this is this is great i i really love this scene i often chafe at hero worship in in mm-hmm. uh in 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 my fiction there's something about it that just plays like the the actual audience talking to the character and i, I don't know i just don't care for it that much or like the author talking about how great the thing they are writing is yeah but I think one of the reasons why this works is that it's clear to us that Jim doesn't think of these cases as great. Right. These are the dangerous cases where he almost dies. And yeah, like... yeah. And and it's not like he's using that as a listen, kid, you don't know what it's like. It's it's more complex than the than those two two ends of that spectrum, right? Like the one end being golly gee, this is the best person ever to the other end being like you don't know what it's like and this middle part where jim is literally flattered but also like a little taken back by it off his guard but not so off his guard that he doesn't have it all together right right? like it's good it's a i think a very uh well-balanced scene i like there's there's kind of a nuance at the end here where that again is getting the kind of like the real character of these two right where jim is self-aware in a way because of his experience knows that sometimes you get a lot of clues but they don't lead to anything right because there's nothing there you're just trying to assemble a picture because you have some other need to answer so he's like not gonna go off like i know there's something wrong here because he has this experience that says sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't while richie's like I do think there's something here and I see that you think there's something here too. You just don't want to admit it. <laughs> so again, that's the two of them are balancing each other in the, in, in that way. Obviously considering that we watched the two of them for most of this episode and it's a fun episode, like they have good chemistry, but mm-hmm. the scene is where we see it kind of starting to come together. We go to a mysterious meeting in a parking garage somewhere where, <laughs> where our, Two, our two goons with Vern in the car 
come into an empty uh like an empty parking floor of this garage where a slick menacing black car uh is waiting so there's this whole thing which is very like i don't know super spy-esque yeah yeah they take Vern out of the car then the car the other car flashes its lights and they bring Vern back into their car and they hook him up to a polygraph test <laughs> which has a receiver in the other car which they they have to describe to us which is great it's all one step more baroque than it needs to be yeah which is the whole mo of uh of 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 uh mcgregor um because as we learn in the next shot uh mcgregor is in the other car and he's the yeah. one asking these questions so they hook up Vern and they get through some bluster before finally getting him to just answer yes or no to questions. Vern has a great line here where he's like, I try to help a little old lady and I end up talking to an Italian car. Yes. Very Rockford line. McGregor finds out what we know as audience, which is Vern doesn't know anything. Um, right. And was there to try and steal Joe's cases, right? Things have been tough this year. I mean, my property taxes went up. Uh, I got to have a double hernia fixed in June. This has been a bad year. Is that statement true? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so he appears to be satisfied, and he says, all right, cut him. And Vern's like, what do you mean, <laughs> cut me? And BJ, our dry goon, means we're going to let you go. <laughs> like, settle down. <laughs> no, so, so this whole thing with Vern is the avenue to show us how McGregor operates and what he's yeah. concerned about, which is who knows what about Joe Tooley. We cut to uh, an establishing shot of an airplane and then a street sign for Willis Avenue <laughs> over a menacing sign that says that it's a condemned area in a airport sound abatement. This will be important later, I suppose. I started noticing now, I didn't go back to check, but I started noticing now that the there's very little musical score in this episode. Oh, yeah. I noticed in my notes here being like, we there's no score as we see the firebird approach. And then from here on, I kind of noted when, when we got a little bit of a sting, mm -hmm. but almost the entire episode is natural sound. There's very little underscoring. That's intriguing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I wonder if that's part of why it feels a little more grounded. Like, I think yeah. I was saying how for a candle script, I felt like this was pretty constrained. I think maybe that's part of it is that it has a very naturalistic approach. It's, there's not a lot of music. Uh, we're mostly just watching people talk like, <laughs> uh, an interesting choice. I would say we see the firebird approaching this address, 1414 Willis Avenue, followed by a red Mustang convertible, which is Richie's car, which looks kind of nice from the long shot. But when we, Coming yeah. into the close shot, we see it's pretty in pretty rough shape. Uh, I think at some point someone mentions that it's a 1965. Ah, it's a red Ford that's been kicking around for a while. Yes, <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah, and that probably the whole bit there probably plays into a little bit of Richie. We haven't gotten this yet, but we we learned that Richie has a little bit of a, a affluent background mm -hmm. that he's rejecting. Right. Uh, to become a, a private eye. Jim doesn't want this to turn into something it isn't. Richie's working on a murder case. Jim's just poking around to try to fill the afternoon. Uh, we then have another great little oh, bit yeah. where Jim pulls out his lockpicks. But before he gets to the door, Richie opens it with a credit card. And the <laughs> just like doing the little credit card swipe on the latch. 
It's specifically because Jim pulls out his lockpicks and then thinks I should look around to see if anybody's watching. <laughs> and while he's turning around, I mean, I'm putting thoughts in his head, but I'm pretty sure that's what's mm. going on. Let me double check before I break and enter that right. there's not a yeah. witness. And, and Richie is just not thinking about it. He just does it. So I love that little moment again, just the, as the showing the two of them. Yeah, you know, they're different approaches. Um, this house seems empty. Uh, Jim finds a, a, an electrical cable on the ground, like a leftover piece of cable. And then they find a huge commercial air conditioning unit in one of the rooms. Um, they say it could cool a five-story building. And uh, Jim infers that they must have had some big electronic equipment in here. Why would you have this huge air conditioning unit that's worth more than the house and the land it's on? Okay, so I'm going to talk about this air conditioning unit for just a minute here. It's a giant one. Uh, it's recognizable to me because I've I've uh, seen the top of like strip malls and things right. like, you know, we've all played video games where you <laughs> can run around on the roof of something. You can see it. But the room that it's in, it's in a room. Yeah. That room must get like you, you probably should, could bake in that room. Right. Th- that's the part of it that I don't get. Like, do they just open the windows and hope? I mean, obviously, it's meant to cool other places in the house and not, you know, the room that it's exhausting into. But, wow. I imagine an HVAC technician could maybe see if there's a legit reason that you'd have it in that small room or or not. So, two things. One, it's just there for the stage, you know, so that we see it. They didn't need to actually have it do anything. So, (laughs) it's just there for TV. Thought two, uh, maybe that's a tell towards how this whole operation is a little more slapdash than they think it is right uh as we will learn this whole computerized operation which we still haven't learned anything about is kind of only hanging on by a thread that's actually one of my favorite things about this episode as we get into it we'll get into like the 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 hints that there are lots of pressures on the the villains of the piece or whatever right. i think you're right there and also like it just clearly shows that this is clandestine that's all we need to know as audience but i like to think head headcanon wise i like to think it's a little nod towards like and they really don't know exactly yeah. what they're doing <laughs> so there's clearly something going on and richie says well we should work together since i'm going to be working on it anyway so why not combine our resources and jim finally agrees says fine we'll work together but we're going to do things my way the next morning richie meets jim in front of telecommunications incorporated yes <laughs> is a great generic uh tv name uh richie's been at the spent the rest of the last day at the hall of records digging up the mm. owner of that house and so they have that name for some reason there's a shot of richie running from his car yeah, he runs from his car over the front lawn yeah and uh, it's a delight to watch him run. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he has a very childlike run, I think is is how I would describe it. Like he's just very like. Uh, mm. oh, I, here I am acting it out for a podcast. Enjoy, folks. Yeah, imagine it in your mind's eye. Um, I, I I guess what it was is I don't know why they had him running up to Jim. Uh, so I sat there and thought about it for <laughs> too long. And there's two things I love about it. one to see that childlike run. Uh, and then the other is it, because it's so childlike, it just reinforces this dynamic, this mentor child right. or, uh, mentor pupil dynamic thing going on. And um, yeah, I don't know. There's just something about it. It does show a little bit of exuberance that I think, yeah. you know, Jim doesn't necessarily have. Yeah. 
little youthful energy. Yes. But yes, so they're going to try and dig up more about this, this, the owner of the house at this uh, telecommunications place. Richie starts up again about how Jim is a living legend, and he references the financial dynamics case. Yes. Uh, which was on the front page of the Times. Uh, and then it, there's something like, sure, you ended up doing 30 days for B&E, but it, like <laughs> it was 90 days. Yeah. It's like, well, that that's not important. Uh, you didn't do them. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's, a, again, another a previous case. Is it? That's the one with the chili dog scene, right? Yeah, that's from Profit and Loss. Yeah. A, a big, a big uh, contender in our... Uh, uh, March Madness, mm-hmm. um, Malibu Madness. That was our episode 55. So yeah, loving, loving the continuity. Yeah, yeah. Richie asks, uh, so how do you get a credit company to run someone? Don't they have tight security? And Jim says, well, that's why I wait until noon and run them myself. And as he says that, he's literally rolling up his sleeves, uh, which is very funny. Yeah. And then he tells Richie to stay with him and don't say anything. And so now we have the put upon working man con where they go into this front office. He's using Richie as his source to complain to. So he's complaining about this other job that they had to do, and now they're late, and he apologizes for being late. I mean, you see, the problem is that the AG terminal micro-spooled again. (laughs) (laughs) Some good techno-babble going on here. We get deep into the techno-babble, because so he tells the the, uh, receptionist that uh, it's the maintenance check on Mr. Davis's terminal. Uh, She didn't have any word they'd be they'd be there and he's like all right fine Uh, Mm -hmm. i'm not going to get any later two hours late already yeah (laughs) you just be sure to tell mr davis that i was here and i'll be back you know some other time and so she you know getting the message that maybe it would be bad if this did not happen uh, right tells him well if they called you you can go ahead and go on in um i do like how she says well they called you right and he doesn't say yes or no he just says well i wouldn't have come up here all by myself (laughs) yeah so they go into this office where there's these computer terminals and they're these like teletype terminals i don't know what the right word would be but they're big hulking monstrosities with little keyboards and they print out a little tiny piece of paper which is fantastic i want one (laughs) (laughs) you definitely want one richie wants to know how jim knows all that computer stuff and as you just pointed to jim talks about how oh that's just that's all babble i just make all that stuff up no one knows anything about computers there's a moment of it's awe, probably. There's something in, in Richie's face here where, like, as an audience, we know two things. Number one, Richie just learned something, and mm. he loves that he just learned something. And number two, we know we're going to watch Richie try it yep. as soon as he possibly can. Is this feeling of, like, oh, you can do that? It's like a child witnessing an adult swear. <laughs> And then realizing, <laughs> wait, I can swear. And then just, you know, just being prepared to, to do it from there on out. So thematically, we get an important uh, little oh, segment yeah. here where Jim says that everyone in the country is in at least 18 computers. <laughs> You'd be surprised what you can learn by just punching in a name. It's spooky. And I noted that just because in our, in our early scene, Joe Tooley, you know, said yes. that uh, he learned something spooky. This doesn't come back or anything, but I think no. it's intentional. I think it's an intentional word choice to link yeah. these things together. There's a red herring that's been running in this episode so far where we maybe are meant to think that the the central plot here is an ecological disaster, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's the development that isn't supposed to be happening. Right. That's Al's angle. Uh 
Al Stevers angle. Uh, like we got kind of a cast of thousands. There's a lot of things in play here. And um, it's a little hard to follow all of them, but it doesn't matter because it's fun watching Richie and Jim. But if, I mean, I knew what I was getting into watching this episode again, because I'd seen it a long time ago and then, mm-hmm. you know, all that. But if you don't, if you're watching it for the first time, uh, we don't know that this is going to be about this about big data right before the phrase is even used um I, yeah i do like this callback to the spooky because it it probably doesn't ring in our head now that this is what because this isn't what he stumbled on because what we're doing here is something that jim would have done anyways like right jim's not investigating anyone in it's this building. more the cross current yeah they're in the same venn diagram of our of like the plot of the show and yeah. how jim works yeah, and like in the middle is this like, you know, you can just look up someone in a computer of one of at least 18 computers. So we watch Jim Hunt and Peck on the keyboard, oh which God. I love. <laughs> and we then have a short computer montage as we cross cut the keyboard and the little printing head with beeps and boops and tape reels spinning and lights flashing. Like it's a it's a mon- it's an action montage of yeah. computers. <laughs> There's two terminals. Jim's looking one to look up the owner of this house. Richie's using the other, and it turns out he's using it to look up Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Five years in state prison? Credit subnormal. (laughs) (laughs) You owe the bank (laughs) $2,500. Jim has a printout for the owner of the house. Uh, We'll get back to it. I didn't write down the name. Uh, Russell. Yeah. So they have what they came for, and they head on their way out, and uh, the receptionist... What was wrong? Well, you see, the uh, 1600 docking transfer button was jammed, and it was hitting against the deactivator tripod. But, you know, like he says, it's going to be just fine now. But you better tell Mr. Davis to degauss every six weeks from now on. Degauss? Oh, sure, that saves the telemetric system. You want to come along, Dick? we got a whole building to service. Oh, sure. I'm sorry, got to go. Bye-bye. Richie, as you say, gets a chance to deploy some techno babble yes. since he just learned he can do it. And then we have the shot as they leave of the two of them starting to laugh. <laughs> Got him. Yep. There's also, there's a, there's a bit there that feels slightly flirty as well, which is, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I love because that's the, uh, that is Jim's go-to. And it just feels like this is Richie learning that he can have fun this way as well. Mm-hmm. And just... It's yeah. not all business necessarily. So they they check on the info they got on this Russell character, and there's uh, there's nothing there. The bank he supposedly has an account with has never heard of him, and they can't get any more. Like none of the information leads to anything. So they figure that the next thing they can do is go talk to Al Stever, and the score kicks in as they ride out. You know, in the in the Firebird, or I guess the two of them ride out to go to see. The, so the two cars depart to go to Stevers and the score kicks in for that. And then we cut to Stevers house and we go back to no score for the rest of the scene. <laughs> I noticed the score pretty much kicks in whenever they're transitioning in a car. <laughs> yeah. But then when we actually get into scenes, there's just nothing. Like it's just the, the natural yeah. audio. Uh, all right. So this next one's a big one. Oh, yeah. So we'll skip it. 
So we'll skip it. No, I'll, I'll kind of hit the <laughs> I'll hit the highlights here, and you can tell me if there's anything you want to go deeper sure. into. Al Stever lives in a trailer, and so we get oh, yeah. Richie bagging on living <laughs> in a trailer, and then Jim, I live in a trailer, and then Richie trying to save himself by tell, talking about how oh, well, trailers can be great. Yeah, you know they can be middle class. I think is what he says. <laughs> They they talk their way in to talk to Stever uh, by saying they're friends of Joe Tooley's, but, you know, he's a little suspicious because everyone, he doesn't right. trust what anyone has to say, but he'll listen to them because they're friends of Joe's. Um, this is crosscut with another guy in an adjoining house who can see them from the window that is also recording what's happening in Stever's place. Yes. And uh, there's a gag with the dog is barking. The dog's always barking. And then the guy who's listening is like, oh, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) But once they start talking, he's recording them. He makes a call. The call goes to the computer headquarters. Our guy on the headset then has to direct the call. And there's whole this thing about uh, patch me through to 216. We have a fire burning here, but 216 (laughs) isn't available. So record and transmit. And then he gets mad that he can't talk directly to 216. So he wants a data transfer on Jim and the firebird. He gives him the information. 853 OKG. That's right. Inside, Richie and Jim talk to... Stever, and we get some backstory of his whole deal. So basically, he's been fighting with this guy, Nardoni, the councilman, for years and years, ever since he had him arrested for the first time in 1974. But he knows the guy's been corrupt, uh, but he's never been able to prove it. He hired Garth McGregor, who, uh, you know, had made his bones like debugging campaign headquarters or something like that. So like, you know, some kind of electronic security thing. Richie and Jim both recognize that name. Richie mm-hmm. is like the Garth McGregor, DCB Incorporated. <laughs> so, you know, he's a he's a name, right? He's a guy. You get the feeling that Richie has an almost complete set of Topps trading, PI trading cards. Right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so, so McGregor didn't turn up anything on Nardoni. And then Stever started working with Thule just to like go over all the old evidence and rehash everything and see if they could find anything around the edges. And then tells them, gives them the story about what we saw from the intro, where he gave him the call, was going to meet him later, had a couple more places to check out, and never showed up. So Stever thinks that he's dead, thinks that the the story is true, him getting hit on the highway. Mm -hmm. Because if he'd been, uh, you know, made an offer or something from whatever he found out, he lived too long to sell out at any price. Right. We follow them as they leave Stever's trailer, and Richie seems to be kind of shaken by that conversation, and he reiterates that maybe he is dead, because, you know, that's right, he would never sell out. So why some plot to replace the body and take him somewhere? Like, he must be dead. And we have an important dialogue bit here. A minute ago, you thought he was alive. So I changed my mind. I've got a right to change my mind, don't I? Don't you ever change yours? Never. <laughs> uh, and he's like, ride with me. We'll get your car later. I assume just to get them together in one car for yeah. the next sequence. We go back to our observer who's been spying on this whole thing. He is on the phone with Nardoni because he hasn't been able to get in touch with McGregor. Uh the clowns at DCB wouldn't patch him through. And then Nardoni takes Jim's address, says that he'll take care of it. Forget about McGregor. He's probably out having lunch with a computer. I mean, don't we all now? I mean, that's the... (laughs) So that's that scene. Yeah, that was a lot. Uh, It was good. A lot of good uh, character moments and things that we get a hint at um, the coming, I guess, crisis 
turning point that Richie and Jim have to face, which right. we'll get very shortly. Maybe the case is too hot for them, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, we're what we're getting now is the uh, the alibi to get out of it to say, oh yeah, he was too too honest to to turn, so he's clearly it, it was just him, mm-hmm. right? There's there's lethal stakes here. Yeah, yeah. Which I think it's uh, impressed upon all of us in the next scene. Yes. As uh, Jim and Richie pull up to the trailer in the Firebird, and as they get out of the car, a yellow. I said a yellow taxi because you can see a medallion, like a, like a, not a medallion, but a, a there's like a, a badge Something. like painted on the door. Um, yeah. It's not a taxi. It is in fact a county vehicle. <laughs> so a yellow county vehicle roars the up. The yellow is really yellow too. It's um, not a, not a natural color for it a car. It looks like a yellow cab from New York, which is why I yeah. thought it was a taxi. Uh, and two gunmen start shooting at with shotguns out of the window. Yes. Our detectives dive under the trailer and uh, we see that Jim is clutching his leg. So he apparently got, you know, took took something and he has Richie drive because uh, they peel back out of uh, Paradise Cove and Jim needs to get close enough to get the license plate. And we get into <laughs> a short but sweet car chase. Yes. It's a delight that they let Richie drive. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite detail for that is we 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 have a long shot of the Firebird accelerating and getting out of the like parking area, and we see it fishtailing around every curve. Yes, and it's like oh, Jim would never do that. Yeah. Clearly, Richie is driving because <laughs> Jim Jim would have more control over the car than that. Yeah. What did you think of this car chase? So this is the one. This is the one where they end up on the overpass. Yes. That's the bit I really enjoyed. And it, it, partly because the off-road moment mm-hmm. was great, uh, where he, he turns, uh, Richie, you just kind of, you come to this impossible situation and Richie just turns it off and just says, okay, we're not doing the roads anymore. Right. And, and goes off. And then they have this moment on top of the overpass as they watch the um, the other car go by underneath them and uh, doesn't know which way to go. And and you just have that nice, like, mentor-mentee moment of, like, you did all right, you know? Like, that's... Yeah, I mean, the bulk of this chase is, is Jim trying to get close enough, getting Richie to get close enough to get the license plate number. The guys in the, the goons with the guns realize that they're being chased. They have a line in that car of, you missed him. How could you miss him? Yeah. <laughs> but they're like, okay, so they, they hatch a plan. They'll stop and they'll have a chance to shoot at them again once they, mm-hmm. you know, slam on the brakes or whatever. Uh, Richie is has enough presence of mind to swerve as they start shooting again. And the Firebird takes a shot in the, in the, in in the, the door, door yeah. which is very sad. Uh, but then it's a car chase the other way where now the goons are chasing them. And that's when Richie finally goes off road. And, and as you say, goes up this like embankment. There's a little bit of elision of like exactly how the very end happens because we see them go through a barrier like road closed barrier and then we see the goons follow see the broken barrier and go through it and then we yeah. pan up to see them on the overpass watching the car you know not be able to find them. It's a little bit of a joke moment. Yeah. Rather yeah. than a because usually we get the details of everything that Jim has done in the chase. Mm-hmm. Right. We usually get a very clear picture of that. Uh, but this one's a little bit more of a let's let's just get to the gag. Right, a gag is not the right word here, but you know you know what I'm saying. Let's mm-hmm. just get to the moment where we we can have this scene. And and it's important to get to that moment because this is where Jim goes. You did all right, son. 
Yes, because this car chase took place on the freeway, which is probably important uh, thematically to this episode, and because, as I've mentioned in our Plus Expenses, I have watched five of the six Terminators. When you ask me how the car chase, and uh, again, because this is a few days ago since I watched this, my brain had to cipher through, like, <laughs> is this the one with the with the truck and the motorcycle? Is this the one with the, you know, like all of these? It's a standard of Terminators for a giant truck involved in some sort of car chase. It just, that's a, a Terminator. You gotta have it. If you don't have it, then you don't have a Terminator movie. And, uh, I had to cycle through all of those to get to the Rockford Files one. No, that's not a robot. Or that's a robot. That, that can't be. Turns out Richie's from the future. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break so that everyone can walk around, stretch, get a refreshing beverage of choice, and uh, find out where you can find us on the internet when we're not talking about the Rockford Files. Of course, 200 a Day can be found at 200aday.fireside.fm patreon.com slash 200 a day and on twitter at 200 pod you can also email us at 200 a day podcast at gmail.com epi where can our fine listeners find you elsewhere on the internet uh you can find my games at dig a thousand holes.com that's dig and then the number 1000 and then holes.com or you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and games at worldswithoutmaster.com or you can find me on twitter at epidiah e-p-i-d-i-a-h uh where can we find you upon this internet all of my stuff including my game design my freelance graphic design and layout work and other projects that i do like zines and podcasts are at ndpdesign.com you can also find me on twitter at ndpaoletta uh, I'm also on Instagram at the same handle where you can see pictures of my dog. I hope you're comfortable with your favorite beverage in hand as we return you now to the show. Uh, so Jim and Richie are laying low in a hotel. Jim's wrapping up his leg. We get this great exchange where Jim's like, I guess things could be worse. And Richie's like, how? He goes, I'm just making small talk. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, Richie runs down what they know, but with explanations for how maybe they've been wrong so far and joe yeah. really was in the car uh echoing what jim said earlier right maybe he lied about his war wound maybe yeah. you know etc jim says maybe he'll go to mexico uh get out of there uh there's no shame in folding so they're both reacting to this oh someone's trying to kill us in different ways it, it's kind of great because like you get this clear implication that Jim knows Richie is making these excuses because he's afraid. Mm -hmm. So Jim is tells Richie like, yeah, it's scary. It is OK to be afraid. It's normal yeah. to be afraid. And the thing that I'm planning to do now is to get away from it. Right. Like, like it's better to live than mm -hmm. to, you know. I really love this moment because it really is like a uh, like they don't decide to turn away from it, obviously, but but um, they take it to this brink. And it's just nice to have the, the character of Jim not try to rah, rah, we got to do this mm -hmm. for our fallen comrade, but rather to say, as Jim would, why don't we do the smart thing? <laughs> like, <laughs> why aren't we? Why don't we just save ourselves here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the big like downbeat. Yeah, getting us into the second act, I guess of the of the story. Um, 
Yeah, it's a pretty important scene thematically or character-wise. Yeah, plot-wise, they they decide to keep going. Yeah, that's what happens. Uh, Richie starts talking about how like the house on Willis Avenue is a strange item, but there's lots of wackos out there, and he starts going down a rabbit hole about a guy he knows who's into model trains. Um, <laughs> and uh, he kind of finally runs down after this long explanation. If I has trains all through his house, he'd send a train to get you a drink and stuff like that. <laughs> um, he he runs down and there's a beat and he goes, boy, it just doesn't float, does it? Mm-hmm. And so he's acknowledging that like he can't explain away these things. There's clearly something going on. Yeah. Um. And yeah, Jim, they can stay and maybe end up like Joe Tooley or they can find someone to feed the cat and leave town for a while. This is when he looks out the window and sees the bullet hole in the side of the Firebird. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Would you look what they did to my car? And then they have this back and forth where they're both sitting on the mattress looking at the camera, but like kind of looking down, you know, but yeah. both facing the same way. This thing has county corruption stenciled all over it. You know, down Cabo San Lucas this time of the year, they got broad bills that I'll tell you they run a hundred, hundred and fifty pounds. We don't even know where this jerk Nardoni fits in. He could put a lot of pressure on us. Get one of those broad bills on a line, and he's up there on his tail, and and to shake that hook, and it's a feeling like nothing else. It's, I like marlin fishing. I said, Joe Tooley was a good guy, but he's dead, and I I don't think that he'd want us going getting killed trying to solve this thing. I suppose we ought to start at the county garage. Yeah, they got logs for these kind of things. Maybe we can get a look at it, you know? And they jump up and they head out. It's so good. <sighs> the other bit that I like about this is the um, the tinking of uh, the shotgun pellet in the ashtray. Mm-hmm. It's clear that Jim is dressing a wound that he has, he has received in this, in this battle uh, without showing us any of the gory details about the wound. I think we do see some blood or something like that. There's some but... blood on, his, on the towel or something like that. Yeah. Oh, it's such a great conversation. It's a great scene. Yeah, it's like you see the the two of them are 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 throwing out the the wistful. Here's why we should stop. Here's what we could be doing in, instead. But they've talked themselves and each other into continuing on because neither of them can let it go. So we go to the Kennedy garage where Richie is talking to the dispatcher in a little kiosk in the middle. So this is a dispatcher for like county vehicles and another good overwrought backstory for uh, uh Richie oh, Brockelman uh con he like he literally invents a space di- a moon disease yes he's <laughs> <a> moon disease. <laughs> oh, he trying to track down a county car he works like he works for the county coroner and they work with a disease control center in la that's for two semesters and they work with nasa for two semesters and this is my favorite he's talking to this wrinkled wrinkled old geezer in the a great face uh in this yeah. in this kiosk and when when richie says and then we work with nasa disease control for two semesters oh i like those moon shots oh, yeah. especially when they're on the t and b those fellas walking around the moon saying roger houston <laughs> it's a great show well everybody thinks so until maybe we bring back a bacteriological strain that nobody can defend against <laughs> so good and i love so how that good. could either mean it's a great thing to watch on TV, or mm-hmm. I think it is a television show. <laughs> yeah. Could be either. 
<laughs> oh man, it's a lot of fun stuff. So the long and short of it is the county coroner dispatched a car to the airport to take a body and then they lost track of who was in the car and they needed to decontaminate it because his body was carrying the black plague yes <laughs> so he has all these medical babble disease things and then finally he like summarizes it for this guy the medieval black death yes and that's when the guy's like oh and then he grabs the dispatch book and starts flipping through it <laughs> The car needs DDW, detergent, disinfectant, wash. Yes. And the driver needs O&E, observation and evaluation. <laughs> and while this conversation is happening, we see Jim kind of sneak in behind the dispatcher and start yes. looking at cars. <laughs> so Richie's trying to get the name of the driver and Jim is checking out the actual car because they have the license yeah. plate. Dispatcher has that. It's been, it was taken out by a David Russell and then sees Jim on his way back from the car where he dug around and pulled something out of the glove compartment and starts yelling at him like, hey, you're supposed to sign in, blah, blah, blah. And I love how Jim has two levels here. First, he's like, it's okay, I'm just leaving. And that doesn't work. The guy keeps yelling at him. So it's like, oh, I'm with Chase Food Machines. We're putting new machines in the break room. <laughs> and the dispatcher's like, oh, well, it's about time. The contrast between Jim and Richie's cons is just exquisite. Richie, he goes to the moon. He goes <laughs> to the medieval black death. He gets what needs to be done, but he's like all over the place. It's very elaborate. He's he's inventing acronyms for things that he has to then tell you what the acronyms right. mean. And Jim's just like, I bet you this guy wants more food in his food machine. <laughs> <laughs> I can make an educated guess that this will work. Yeah. So they compare notes on their way out. You know, the name is uh, David Russell. Same last name as the house owner, John Russell. And Jim just crumples up the piece of paper he found and throws it over his shoulder. <laughs> so it's like, all right, I guess that's more important than this piece of paper he found that we never hear what it is. <laughs> I mean, unless I missed something, but that. No, no, I, I have no idea either. Yeah. It could just be the same information. Yeah, yeah, that's possible. All right, so they go back to the same place to run this other name. So I guess they continue, you know, posing as this computer repair guys. Um, <laughs> I love this. Nothing's Steve. coming up for David Russell. Let's try the variations. David John, John David, see if it's the same person. And then the do door opens and two guys in suits come in. And uh, we get a great, oh, so good. just the just the great spike on this whole gag. What are you doing in here? Computer terminal repair. We'll be through in a minute. Uh, you want to uh, patch me through to Computer Central, and then we'll uh, run a scan for now. Oh right, you want me to micro spool and see if we're still ghosting at sixteen hundred LTS? Good idea. What are you two talking about? That's computer talk. It's probably a little confusing. That's gibberish. We'll be through in a minute. You're through right now, mister. I happen to have a degree in computer technology. <laughs> oh, man. So calls their bluff. And then Richie, this is great. Yeah. Richie jumps in to save the situation. And Jim backs it up immediately. Yeah. Which is fantastic. So Richie goes, well, do you have a 38? And he's like, what? <laughs> he's like, well, he has a 38 caliber automatic. Show him, Jack. <laughs> And then Jim puts his hand in his pocket and then makes a pocket gun. 
but he makes like a clicking noise. So it sounds like he's, you know, cocked the revolver and he gets all like serious. And he's like, yeah, I never want to get to this point. I don't like to use this thing, but I will, you know, whatever. Uh, and it's enough to intimidate our two guys in suits uh, to get them out of the way of the door and they can walk out. And uh, I hate to use a cliche, but don't leave for 10 minutes. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then we cut to them in their Firebird and Jim's little 38 was a Zippo lighter. <laughs> makes the clacking noise again as he lights a cigarette a rarely seen jim rockford cigarette oh yeah that was wonderful like the moment those two guys came in what's great about those two guys is that they uh have this goon physique mm-hmm. <laughs> that are just you just know that they're trouble and then turns out they're just guys that work there yeah 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 no it was good it was good all right so all the information they found on the various russells have different names and addresses and social security numbers, but they have the same actual information, the same balance in this bank account at this bank that says they don't know who he is. Same check guarantees, which I don't know what those are. I'm, I feel like I'm too young to know what a check guarantee is. I might be too. On a credit report. I don't know. Uh, 35 married, one child, the American average, Mm -hmm. but there are two more addresses. So clearly there's this phony character that is being used right for all these purposes we have a good moment of bonding here i think where richie says um you think we should split up do you well i don't want you to think of me as being a chicken me neither <laughs> and they share a smile yes the next address they check out uh we have an establishing shot that it's also in a airport sound abatement zone Jim opens the front door and we cut to another flashing light and another alert in the computer command center. Uh, Richie opens the garage and there's another huge air conditioner in the garage this time. Yeah, this makes slightly more sense, I think. That's their plan, not mine. Uh, this empty house has not been cleared out. It still has a bunch of computer equipment in it. In the command center, the guy says, like, there's been a kick at the relay station. And then Jim says, must be a relay station. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we are we are informed that it is in fact a relay station. There are guys in the area, so cars pull up outside and Jim sees them. They're like, we got to get out of here. It is, in fact, our goons who grabbed Vern, of course. This is the great little maneuver, I think, that you were thinking yes. of earlier. They go down an alley behind the house. One of the guys says, go cut them off, right? But they yeah. pull into someone else's garage. And so they are not to be seen. Classic Gambit. Classic Gambit. We then have uh, BJ, uh, the main goon, is on the radio calling us in directly to Garth McGregor, saying that it's Rockford and Brockelman uh, and wants further instructions. And so now we get to see some of the pressures going on with whatever this deal is with uh, McGregor. They have two big shots coming into town that day. The timing is bad. Uh, So to keep everything moving, they're going to have to consolidate the operation. He wants BJ to close up the four shops on the Russell code and reroute the information somewhere else. Uh, Call in Nardoni if they have to to get county crews. Uh, McGregor will handle bringing in uh, RPI heroes. And through this conversation, we see that his like desk and office is outside the computer room. Like we can see all of those things that we've been seeing through the big like windows behind him. Yeah. This is clearly all his operation. So the next address they check out, uh, there's two cops there saying that there's a gas leak and they can't go in. So they're like, okay. Right. This, this, is... Is, this is going all the way up to the top. <laughs> yeah. And Jim and Richie start snapping at each other, I think, out of frustration. Yeah. 
uh, at, at the situation. Uh, I feel like we see Jim in almost angel-esque peak mm-hmm. in this scene because he's just trying to like think and he's also scared. Yeah, yeah. Now there's cops involved. Like this is getting everything we find indicates this is more and more dangerous. We end the scene with Richie. Are you going to take my head off or ask another question? And Jim says, no. No. <laughs> and he's like, what are we going to do now? And Jim snaps. I don't know. Why don't you try coming up with something for a change? There's a great Jim line in that scene. Again, getting to the heart of like his self-preservation. That's like, you're darn right I'm scared. Anybody with good reflexes would be hopping out like a scalded dog by now. <laughs> we go to an establishing shot of Richard Brockelman, private eye, on his own <laughs> glass door. We, we see the door. Then we see a shadowy figure inside. I was like, that's clearly Vern, right? And then Jim and Richie <laughs> come in, and uh, sure enough, it's Vern. Uh, he's trying to hide under the desk, and they just like come over to the desk and look down, and he's just huddled up under the chair, which is very funny. Um, he tries to bluster that Richie's trying to steal Joe's cases, which offends Richie, as we can see on his yeah. face. Jim threatens to bring him downtown to Lieutenant Chapman for a on a on a B and E charge if he doesn't tell him why he's there. Uh, losing his cool, grabbing Vern's tie, and really getting in his face. Vern finally fesses up and tells him the story of how he was picked up and the whole thing with the car. A great line. I, I didn't get the whole line, but it was just, he describes them as having narrow ties. Two guys grabbed me. I thought they were cops, you know, short hair and narrow ties. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so he thought he, if Richie was on Joe's cases, maybe he could sell that information to the guy in the car because yeah. it's been a rough year. Jim is like, okay, he believes him. He hustles him out. I uh, threatens him again. Okay, Vern. If I see, if I hear about you, if I even read your name in a paper, I'm going to put a bad hitch in your get-along. Now go. Tough guys. Everybody's a tough guy. I'm not. Who knows what the hell you are, kiddo? <laughs> so good. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I love that line, it, especially coming from Vern. Mm-hmm. It's very good. So all of the stuff with all the computers and technological stuff reminds Jim of Garth McGregor. Yeah. And we get some exposition about the story behind him, which is he was trying to set up a computerized information center in Massachusetts, but it got shut down overnight. Uh, there was government involvement and it smells of invasion of private information. He mentions a like a government acronym program that I looked up and I think it was made up for this episode. It uh. doesn't seem to be a real thing. Uh, but just to establish that idea of like the government has all of our data. Right. So Richie opines that what if McGregor, when he was hired by Stever to see what was going on with Nardoni, did dig something up. But instead of going to Stever with it, decided to use it to blackmail Nardoni to get some kind of government backing for another effort at this computerized information thing that he does. Uh, Jim says that that explains a lot of the variables in this case. And uh, we have a wonderful back and forth here. Yeah, of course, it doesn't explain the houses or the computer people, but that's not bad. That's not bad. Good boy, Richie. Good boy. Hey, didn't you forget the pat on the head? Oh, hey, what up? No, no, that's okay. That's okay. When you get a little older, I'll call you Pop. Probably won't bother you either. Now, look who's getting sore, huh? Jim takes the rebuke, and so Mm -hmm. they share a smile, like, to soften the the edges of this, what could have been a contentious little argument, I think. Jim is going to call his good friend Dennis Becker, uh, (laughs) just hoping that the fix doesn't go all the way to the L.A. police. And Richie, I also have a police contact. We better call him, too. <laughs> uh, 
That's great. I, I mean, my notes are like, Richie's got a Becker. <laughs> yep, Richie's definitely got a Becker. It's very funny. Um, we then get a classic uh, putting out the APB on Jim and Richie with their descriptions for felony, <laughs> breaking and enter- entering, armed and presumed dangerous. And I noted this. This didn't turn into anything. I just thought it was funny. Uh, both suspects have extensive police records. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, Richie, extensive police record. Yeah, there's a dark history to Richie. I'm sure we we have to check out the the missing 24 hours we to will. find out. Yeah, uh, and I feel like this transitions us into the the, the third act of our story here. Uh, we're going to start. Yeah, seeing things come together. We have a scene of McGregor greeting a couple of European men coming off of his helicopter, uh, and they have British-ish accents. <laughs> Seem a little <laughs> yeah. shaky to me. I think here we we start to see the the shaky ground of whatever McGregor's deal is, right? I have sparse notes on the content of yeah. this conversation, but the the what it conveys to us, or at least I, I think it's conveying to us, is um, what you were saying before, like how this isn't a, a done deal. This is not a very secure operation. There are the way that McGregor and the other two men look to each other when things are said mm-hmm. in this conversation uh, indicate power dynamics. Yeah, because uh, one of the one of the these gentlemen is holding McGregor to account. There's a guy who's supposed to be Scottish, yeah, I think, and he's kind of slightly more friendly, and the guy who's more like British is less friendly. Yeah, and the the British guy and and they seem to be deferring to the Scottish guy, mm-hmm. both of them, as if they're trying to blame each other for some sort of mess up. It's clear that there are pressures on all of these people. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole thing about, uh, inter- it, wait, is it Interpol? So, yeah. So they say that they've already sold their services to several international banks and a European government. So they have yeah. to deliver on schedule. Uh, and then when Interpol sees what they're doing, they'll change their minds and join. Yeah. So this whole thing, whatever this operation is, it's whatever was canceled in Massachusetts. Yes. McGregor brought it to L.A. over their objections. And now they think it's things aren't going well. And he's like, no, no, they're going fine. Everything's great. But it seems like they don't really believe him. And they all have a lot on the line because they've sold their services of whatever McGregor's doing already to very important and powerful people. Yes. Uh, So they better deliver. Um, There is an ominous note at the end. uh, You know, they don't want any public outcry or governmental intervention. It all has to remain unknown for the first two or three years. And then after that, it won't matter much. (laughs) So true. (laughs) Our next scene is... I was going to say fun, but not important, but it is important because it yeah. has a, more about Richie. Um, the scene is they set up a, a a place to talk to their respective police contacts. Jim knows how this stuff goes. So now they're in Richie's car and Richie has a police band radio. So Jim yeah. wants to keep an ear on that before they commit to the meeting. And while they're waiting to hear something, they're chatting. Mm -hmm. At the end of the scene, they do hear Dennis and the other guy talking over their radios, talking about the setup they have to bring these guys in. Yes. And so they are able to just ditch and not do the thing. Dennis doesn't like it, uh, but they have a county warrant out. And Jim comes in on the radio. Why don't you sit on it? (laughs) But the conversation between Jim and Richie is the important thing here. Yeah, this kind of gets into the sort of the psychological underpinning, not of the whole episode, but like a nice 
juicy bit of it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great Jim line early on where he just says the same thing that makes cops wear gray suits and white socks makes them itch when there's a warrant on the mm-hmm. board. But the main thing is just uh, Richie talking about not having support from his parents. Right. And then assuming that Jim's dad supports him. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's not the case. Uh, there's another reference to the Red Ford. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's like, well, when you talk to Rocky, what does he say? He's like, oh, well, he talks about Red Fords. Yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't make much sense in context because Jim is avoiding telling Richie that his father also doesn't approve of what he does. Yeah. Right. And and Richie's envisioning uh, a relationship in which you can just sort of talk through cases, like how right. useful that would be to just talk through. And in fact, we've seen Jim do this a few times, uh, but it's, it's not a, um, it's, it's not a mutually agreeable situation when it happens, you know? Right. Uh, so it's good. I really dig it. It, 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 it not only kind of gives us a little more, look at that but it gives us uh a way to have jim and richie you know because we've had a little tension between them as of late in this episode and this is just like a real moment of like identifying with each other Mm. even though richie doesn't realize he's not identifying like the jim can identify with richie in this situation Uh, i think the the nut here is jim taking on kind of the mantle of mentor at the end of the conversation and giving advice because because he starts talking about the red ford stuff and richie's like what does that mean he's like it's not important you know it doesn't make any difference what anybody else thinks about what you're doing it's what you think about what you're doing it's important oh yeah well I, i really love it i really do you know even now with all this all this crazy stuff going on if you think about it we're the only two guys who have a chance to uncover something really big. If you're happy with what you're doing, that's the important thing. <laughs> uh, so I think Jim being the self-actualizing, you know, person <laughs> that he so often is, is uh, gives some real advice to him there. And I think yeah. that's important. Well, they avoid being arrested by their cop buddies. And then we have a couple scenes back in McGregor's world. Uh McGregor and Nardoni are uh, having drinks, or at least McGregor is, and we see that Nardoni super nervous. I think this scene really is about reestablishing where McGregor has power, right? Mm-hmm. And he has power over Nar- Nardoni, and we see that very clearly because I guess Nardoni went off on his own to like send a couple guys with shotguns in a county car after them. You know, it's yeah. pretty stupid, which I agree. Because McGregor needs to know who they talk to before anything happens to them. It's like a cancer. You have to track down all the lymph nodes before you can cut out the <laughs> malignancy or what, to cut out the tumor or whatever. Um, Nardoni only did that because he couldn't get in touch with McGregor. But McGregor says to, you know, from now on, don't do anything without talking to me or he'll re- release all that incriminating stuff. Right. So I think that's just to show us their, you know, their situation. And I think there's a little bit there which is indicative of the whole thing where things started going wrong once McGregor was not in direct control. Yeah. And it's like he can only be in control of so much. So as more happens that he's not in control of, the the more he tries to tighten his grip, right? Like that's kind of the dynamic here. There's an interesting thing about uh, McGregor in that he's um, introduced to us uh, via Richie and 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 Jim as like another private eye who has an obsession with electronics. 
but now he's he's not he's like he's he's a he's a private eye gone wrong yeah yeah you know he ends this conversation with a blackmail threat which you should uh, you should <laughs> always end a conversation with a blackmail threat always that's, yeah. i have found that that's it, it's just good etiquette <laughs> but um you get the feeling that his surveillance is like he probably has a blackmail ring going on, right? Like mm-hmm. you both get the idea that he's a mastermind and way over his head. Mm-hmm. He, he he was probably going to be a competent PI, but that's, <laughs> he shot way too far for for what he wanted to do. I mean, I think this is a good this is good casting. I think yeah, like because Jackie Cooper is great in both of these dynamics. Because in the last scene, we saw him trying to convince people who have more power than he does that he's yeah that he can do the thing and then in this scene we see him being like no i'm the one in charge and yeah it's not that he's like groveling or anything but like we see that that tension is there where he feels the pressures from both directions he has these guys who need him to do the thing or else they're all in trouble then he has this other guy who's nominally subservient to him but keeps doing things that he doesn't want him to do and mm-hmm. those are both dangerous avenues and he's just trying to hold it all together um it seems that he's also taking a more direct hand as he and bj are in a big black van going out to paradise cove to confront jim uh on the way he's reviewing some files where they've inserted a bunch of false criminal records into jim and richie's files uh in among the legit stuff there's a line where it's like oh richie's he's you know, he's a real, real troublemaker. He broke a window when he was yeah. in high school and his dad paid for it or something like that. Um, but the plan is they're, they're going to go bug Jim's trailer. Um, but they get there and the trailer is gone. Yes. <laughs> and I remembered then that there was a throwaway line earlier where Jim was going to call Rocky to, I don't remember if he said call Rocky to go to the house. I mean, I think he specifically said to get the trailer. To get the trailer? Okay, yeah. And I vaguely recall thinking, does he mean his whole house? <laughs> or <laughs> or like just like a hitch trail? You know, like... Well, someone, uh, you know, just hanging out along the beach as they do, uh, says that uh, that a guy in a semi came came by and <laughs> took took the trailer. That's our Rocky. That's our Rocky. McGregor is infuriated because this should have been known. And then BJ's like, oh, it wasn't on the computer, sir. We thought it was a residence. That's a little dig at like, well, not everything's going to be in the computer, you know? Yep. Blame the computer. Blame the computer. Well, I think, again, thematically, there's it's, it's important because it's like, even if everything is recorded, there's right. a bit of a futility to it because in the real world, stuff happens that's not going to go into the computer. Yeah. And, and it's also like... I mean, I think this is the only time we've seen the trailer move. <laughs> I think so. Okay, so, so far we've seen computers tell us where people live. Like, that's the main thing that we've seen a computer do, is right. just spit out an address. And it's great that Jim's, like, response that, well, if a computer can tell you where I live... <laughs> it's, it's to move the address? Yeah, I'm just going to move it. And it's great. I love it. Um, we go to another nice little downbeat scene where the trailer has been moved into the woods somewhere. And Rocky is coming with a coming back to the trailer with a fishing pole. <laughs> <laughs> and we have our score come back here uh, underneath as we get to the, our yeah. little idyllic scene. Jim and Rocky have a little bit of uh, conversation about Richie. Uh, Rocky says, can you believe that a nice kid like that would be a P.I.? <laughs> 
That's great. It's like, I know you didn't want to just come out here for some fishing. I know you're in trouble. And Jim's <laughs> like, okay, fine. I'm in trouble. So Rocky, of course, did not catch Jim's breakfast. He only caught breakfast for himself. He's going to have to catch his own. That's part of slowing him down. Uh, yeah. And then we see our second instance of Richie running as he's going for a nice morning run around the lake while Jim fishes. <laughs> they have some banter about why are you getting up early and running? <laughs> He's like, it makes me feel good. Uh, old man. <laughs> That's unspoken. But <laughs> Yeah. But there's a uh, there's a couple of things they haven't done yet. How did they know that Vern was in Tooley's office in the first place when they grabbed him? Uh, McGregor must have that place bugged. You figure that one of us should go into the office and bang the drawers around a little bit and wait for the sky to fall in? Uh, not one of us. Me. You're the one that wanted to go to Cabo San Lucas, remember? I changed my mind. Title to change my mind every now and then. Thing, and we have a call back to the uh, "I'm allowed to change my mind" moment from earlier. But now Jim's on that side of it, right? He's like, "Don't you ever change your mind?" Jim's like, mm-hmm. "Never." And now Jim's like, "I'm entitled <laughs> to change my mind." <laughs> um, Jim thinks that if McGregor picks him up, he'll learn a lot more than Vern did, which seems fair. Uh, and through that, also mm-hmm. we see that, and, and also Richie's like, "Well, you're not leaving me behind." You know, they're still both going to be involved. Yeah, yeah. So we cut to Jim breaking back into Joe's office. He leaves the door cracked <laughs> and starts literally banging drawers around. Uh, we see our by now familiar <laughs> alert at the computer command center. Uh, he picks up the phone. I couldn't tell if he made a fake call just to trip the recording or if he actually made a call, but he calls for Mrs. Davenport. You know, he'll call her back oh, later. Yes. <laughs> nice little Beth <laughs> reference there. I felt like there was a, this was indicating that a lot of time was passing between when he went in and when they the guys got out there to pick him up, which again is a little yeah. bit of like this whole operation's not, you know, as cut and dried as they'd want it to be. When BJ and his buddy finally get in there, they have some great banter. Come on, take it easy. Shut up. Where's Brockelman? Oh, it's not my turn to watch him. Oh, I can see you're going to keep us in stitches. Well, I try to stay bright in spite of the company. (laughs) The car takes Jim out to the helicopter, and we see that Richie was riding in the trunk the whole time. So he's sneaking onto the helicopter, unbeknownst to anyone. And uh, we get the Jim McGregor confrontation back in the helicopter. He wants to know what Jim thinks is going on, ask him a few questions, maybe set him up on a polygraph test. And once there's no secrets between them, he's prepared to make a deal. Maybe an employment contract, maybe cash. Jim is indicating that he doesn't think, you know, that this conversation is going to go that way. (laughs) (laughs) He always does badly on tests. Uh, Well, Mr. Tooley was on the other side of this coin. He thought he could destroy the project, but the project destroyed him. So Jim finally <laughs> gets some closure slash confirmation that the yeah. uh, the body on the highway was not, in fact, Joe Tooley's, but he is dead. Uh, he's in Northern California fertilizing an orange grove. He's gone to do the citrus business. That is a, a good canal threat. Like that's yeah, a, it's a very uh, urban horticulturalist style turn of phrase. Yeah. <laughs> uh, McGregor says he needs to have some leverage over Rockford or he's going to meet the same fate. But Jim replies that he knows he's not walking out of there. So he'll give McGregor some sleepless nights. What if he told the press or the old <laughs> letter to my attorney only to be opened upon the event of my death? He knows that 
McGregor is putting together some kind of computer information center and he has his his hooks in Nardoni, but he's starting to unravel like a cheap sweater. So what's the what's your plan here? Personal secrets for sale, hooked into computer systems <laughs> to mess with credit ratings and crush the little guy at any moment. What is this going to turn into? A private security company with hiring ex-police and hiring out to the highest bidder, etc. McGregor says that, to my knowledge, none of this is illegal. But now they've gone too far, and he welcomes Jim to the citrus industry. (laughs) He leaves, his goons come in, and the helicopter takes off with Jim pleading that he was just trying to improve his negotiating position. They can still deal. (laughs) Again, a lot of talking in that scene. (laughs) Yes. My favorite little bit in there is that when McGregor starts talking about the polygraph test, he turns to, like, get the electrodes because he has one there and then he looks disappointed when jim's like we're not going to do that he legitimately (laughs) is sad he doesn't get to do another polygraph test because that's clearly his favorite part yeah um yeah no it's a good scene it's uh my notes have like what is the plan Mm -hmm. written all over it because this is definitely the moment where jim leaves us the audience in the dark and just throws himself into the fire and we get some richie Mm -hmm. in the background uh but we don't know exactly what was set up or what Richie is supposed to do. And the fact that he's on the helicopter <laughs> is is such a threat at this point. Yeah, because he, in fact, has stowed away. So once the helicopter's yeah. taken off, he drops some luggage to make a noise. One goon goes <laughs> back there to check on it. And Richie literally gets the drop on him, jumps on him from the top luggage rack. <laughs> BJ goes to help. Jim manages to grab him and, and give him a good... A good sound thrashing uh, on the way over. So with the element of surprise, our heroes manage to subdue our goons. And now that Jim has his gun, he goes into the front area and has the pilot uh, go up, first go to 10,000 feet and then to go set down on the other side of Dead Rock Canyon. They're going to find out what's <laughs> going on over there. What I don't know what the 10,000 feet was about. Me neither. I wonder if you knew helicopters, if that would be a thing. I thought that maybe yeah. that was like... At that height, they would attract attention and like like a, like the police would have to like dispatch something. That's a classic Jim Gambit, right? Like to, to just do the obvious mm-hmm. illegal thing so that uh, the police would come in. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But at the end of the day, they set down near Dead Rock Canyon. Richie has everyone handcuffed in the in the in the chopper and Jim has rigged some kind of radio mm-hmm. out of helicopter parts. Yeah, (laughs) we're getting a little a team here he's handing it to richie as richie's like oh i better carry that it looks heavy yeah and then he puts it on goes maybe we'll switch jim's like yeah maybe (laughs) jim's never gonna carry that we we know that no and then we have our music kicked back in as they walk off into the wilderness the music being uh the theme from lord (laughs) of the rings as played by enya um they come out to a building site uh Jim thinks that this stuff seems too public and the environmentalists are all already over all over these this housing construction. But there's another road on the Mm -hmm. other side of the canyon with a bunch of equipment going up it. So they better see what that leads to. He again says, you stay here and I'll come back or something. And Richie's like, no, I'm I'm coming with you still. (laughs) Jim admits (laughs) that, well, you have been useful. They will go together. Uh, They do wait till night until they do a scooby-doo style will just walk slowly behind this piece of equipment that is slowly driving into the secured area (laughs) on the other side of the guard post so no one sees us and one of them says this looks like an old missile silo 
there's a crate with 1414 Willis Avenue stenciled on it, establishing some some connection. Mm-hmm. But they do sneak underground uh, where there's a bunch of stuff moving around. They start walking around like they belong there. And then they see McGregor uh, and his two European dudes. They turn so that they're not seen, but then there's two security guys right behind them. So they go <laughs> right back into Technobabble. <laughs> well, I told you I installed it, right? The computers still have the manual override for the counterspun serving system. Well, it won't work. Not until you switch to 2345 conduit, I'm telling you. Now, yeah, that won't be This a is a wonderfully staged family. moment. Can I see your security passes, please? Sure. No! Then the sucker punches them in the stomach. <laughs> they start running. Jim has... Uh, as, as a bad limp, right? As we see in this scene. Mm. And I kind of wonder if the whole thing with the gunshot wound was to give an explanation for why he's limping so much. We know he's limping right. because as, as covered previously on the show, because he did all of his own stunts, James Garner had busted knees throughout the entire series and got multiple knee surgeries between seasons. Yeah. And if this is like the end of a season, it means... Yeah. yeah, I wonder if this was a... I feel like we've seen this in at least one other episode where there's like a in-this-fiction reason why Jim one is limping. One of 90s movies did it. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly what the deal was, but so yeah. It's, it's very noticeable in this sequence because yeah. otherwise that, that wasn't anything other than getting Richie to drive, I guess, is the other reason. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> see, it serves multiple purposes yet again. <laughs> but even limping, this whole sequence is action pack like there's more punches (laughs) per minute as they head out of the area richie calls in a monster fire uh from the backpack radio um yes a big fire out here they get to the gate jim grabs richie and starts yelling i got one of them you go in and get the other one and then as the guard passes (laughs) him punches him out by surprise and that gives him enough cover to get out of there uh, and disappear into the darkness uh the rest of the scene is watching police and fire respond to this called in fire and surround the gate which blocks in mcgregor's car as he tries to leave Jim and Richie walk back up and it's kind of covered by the sirens, but we end with a great line from Richie where he goes, I called it in and there wasn't an actual fire, but there's been an actual crime. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then we uh, end with our final scene with Jim, Rocky, Richie and Al Stever and his dog are outside Jim's Mm -hmm. trailer. Jim's handing out Cokes and beers as they are watching a news broadcast covering the events. Yes. Nardoni has resigned from the city council. McGregor was arrested for the murder of Joe Tooley. First, they first the press is talking to Stever. So this is, you know, previously recorded. And Stever thanks Jim and Richie. Without them, they couldn't, he, you know, none of this would have been discovered. This makes Rocky happy to hear Jim thanked on TV. <laughs> Yes. And it's so funny because he's thanked by someone who's just sitting there having a meal with them. (laughs) Then there's a little press conference with Cooper Smith, who's Richie's cop buddy, who makes a statement summarizing the crime. McGregor was his company was attempting to set up a secret system of computers, which would carry the personal records of 200 million Americans. And then it goes back to the broadcaster who makes this statement of it's one thing to have our records computerized by the government, but why does a government install a secret underground center in one of the world's largest cities? Makes you think. Mm -hmm. Rocky goes back to the grill to finish off the uh, fish that clearly has been caught for this occasion. Richie's talking about how great Jim was. Jim gives him credit. It was a team effort all the way. 
How about you, Rocky? What do you think? Well, I don't pretend to understand why you fellas like to go around private eye, but I will say when Mr. Stever came on that TV and mentioned your names, I was proud of both of you. Hearing their names on TV clearly is the thing that tips him over to being joyous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we end with a great Jim and Richie moment. Well, it looks like you found a place to come and talk, son. Ah, oh, what the hey, Pop. <laughs> and Jim puts his hand yeah. around his shoulders and we freeze frame with the two of them smiling at each other. Victorious in their private investigator ways. Yes. And then we end with secret information centers. Building dossiers on individuals exist today. You have no legal right to know about them, prevent them, or sue for damages. Our liberty may well be the price we pay for permitting this to continue unchecked. Member... U.S. Privacy Protection Commission. That is a text screen that is put up b- between the freeze frame and the end credits. Uh, uh, anything in those last two scenes you wanted to touch on? Uh, no, it was just great. It was it was fun to see Richie push the angle with Rocky to try and get Rocky to to admit to being proud of Jim and his work, like kind of seeing through what, what the situation is, or just being oblivious about it and doing it. It's hard to tell <laughs> with Richie. There's a line. Uh, somewhere in these earlier scenes, I think it's when they're going, uh, got the radio on Richie's back and they're heading to the, to the site or whatever, where Jim, I can't remember the context, but Jim says something like people underestimate you all the time. And Richie's like, Mm. I count on it. That's the thing that kind of really sells the character Mm -hmm. of Richie Mm -hmm. to me. Like, yeah, actually I kind of want to watch a television show about a private investigator that nobody thinks is just too gee golly to do it, you know, because it's I mean, that's also from a different angle. That's Columbo, right? So many people just think, oh, he's he's harmless. Yeah, he's harmless. Yeah. He's a harmless old man. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, no, this was a, a delight to watch. Like I said, uh, if I wasn't watching the time only because I had to schedule the time to do it. Right. I think I would just this would have just flown by. I was thinking because sometimes in the two parters, there's a little bit of like padding's the wrong word but there's there's stuff where it's like this could be cut to make this a regular episode and maybe you lose some depth or maybe you lose some background but like it Hmm. doesn't really change anything so i was kind of keeping an eye out for that i feel like there's there really aren't any of those scenes in this like this is really a cohesive narrative of this length um i mean there's maybe some little tiny moments but like I was going to say, like, even you could maybe cut out the scenes where we're staying with McGregor, but you still have to explain McGregor's pressures somehow, right? So you can't just cut those. Like, that would actually have to change uh, somehow. There is a little bit of, like, composition length that could be trimmed out, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we don't have to watch the helicopter for as long as we do, stuff like that. But, (laughs) yeah, yeah, but no, but overall, it's, I think that's kind of what I may, what I was getting to with saying that it's a pretty, sophisticated episode like because Mm -hmm. the thematic stuff and the plot stuff and the dialogue all all comes together in a way that feels like it all has to be there yeah we're kind of used to backdoor pilots and things like even though that isn't specifically what this is but this is along those lines of front door pilot (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's not even the pilot too it's like uh it's the second pilot yeah um but uh, like in all those cases, I think they do a really good job on the Rockford Files with them. And and this is just like another example of that where they uh, – well, thinking about the Gabby and Gandy one, mm-hmm. right? Where 
Rockford is barely in it, and I like I, I don't mind that he's barely in it. It's kind of fun to have him going about doing a normal day's work uh, with those two sort of in the foreground trying to do the same work. Uh, but like this one, it's it's just very seamless. It, it Richie Brockleman feels a part of the Rockford world. Yes, there's nothing about this that feels forced upon the Rockford audience. Now, obviously, I'm not watching it for the first time mm-hmm. in 1978. Like maybe that maybe I would feel that way if 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 that were the case. But I don't think so. I just he feels like just another character that exists in the um, the Rockfordiverse. Yeah. The same way that Lance White does. Mm-hmm. Or like like um, uh, Susan, the reporter. Yeah. Anyone that we're like, we're with the two of them for an entire episode. So we see their dynamics. We see how they yeah. bounce off each other. We see their chemistry. We get a little bit of the history. It just turns out we get five more episodes of Richie Brockleman. And then we get another two-parter <laughs> with him later. So, you know, we get to see even more. Um, yeah. So I think from that perspective yeah nothing but good things to say about this one um there is one little tiny thing that just started occurring to me during the recap which was like Uh oh why did they have to do a fake body like why did they have to do a falsified killing of a guy that they actually killed that yeah hold on let's see if we can think that through there because he's gonna disappear Right. But that just means that whoever actually died, because they didn't kill anyone to cover it up. They just. They said, like, some poor, like, some poor soul on Ventura Boulevard or something. So it sounds like they either found a body or, like, you know, I don't know. I think there was an accident that happened Mm -hmm. and they just paid for. They just swapped him into it. You think? Because it's his car, though. Oh, yeah. Because it's a gas truck, right? Yeah. Like, some. Somebody, that whole bit is very elaborate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, it is the, it's there because it's the premise. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it gets Richie <laughs> suspicious. Yeah. Like, that's, that's, that's the function of it. But, I mean, I guess maybe they wanted to see if they could make a deal with him. And then when he wouldn't deal, they already had this other thing set up. Could be. Or, like, they did the thing to fake his death. And then they were like, oh, but then you'll, if you make a deal, then you make a, you know, then you get to come back. And it was all a mistake or something. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, <laughs> I'm throwing it out. <laughs> I'm going to go and just break that DVD in half and never watch it. No, no, no. <laughs> it's a, it's a little bit of evidence of like McGregor being too smart for his own good. Maybe read it that way. That is a thing. He does over elaborate things. Right. Uh, and, uh, and it does depend on falsifying information, which is kind of his thing. Yeah. So maybe that maybe, maybe it's just yeah, that McGregor right. is not as good at this as he thinks he is for the same reason why mcgregor sits in an italian car and uses a uh uh a electronic transmitted lie detector signal fun fun fact that i only know from the uh imdb trivia while everyone refers to it as an italian car because Vern calls it an italian car that is in fact a lotus which is a british car <laughs> ah, there we go so there you go a very fancy one which yeah. is the point uh, speaking of McGregor, um, we keep framing this as an issue episode because of this final frame, mm-hmm. right? So two things. One is that statement. Yeah. I was curious, you know, looking up some stuff. So this episode comes out in early, in February 78. So it was, you know, presumably conceived of and written and shot in in, in 77. There was a commission... It's technically the Privacy Protection Study Commission. Congress passed uh, the Privacy Act of 1974 in 1974, 
which establishes the Privacy Protection Study Commission to study the implications and other issues around what the act, you know, is, is putting into law and issue a report, um, which it does in 77. So, you know, this thing is being drawn directly from, I imagine, the report that the commission actually filed. The Privacy Act is all about information practices that govern the collection, maintenance, use, and dissemination of information about individuals that's maintained by federal agencies. Mm -hmm. So this is a report on how federal agencies are going to handle individuals' private information. So that's the context for this splash screen, which is basically saying that these like secret information centers, if they're run by private agencies, there's nothing right you know there, there's nothing keeping them from doing all these things if it's federal that's different because there's the privacy mm-hmm. act that actually oversees that so anyway the the department of justice website has a whole thing about the privacy act of 1974 and includes a link to the pdf of the report personal privacy in an information society is the title and we'll Ooh. link it in the show notes yeah I didn't read it. I I skimmed the introduction. (laughs) Fun fact, the two senators who were associated with this were Barry Goldwater and Ed Koch. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, one can read it if one would wish to. But um, it's all about examining individual privacy rights and record-keeping practices. Uh, Although the private sector has been emphasized in our inquiry, we also attempted to assess the effectiveness of protections for personal privacy in the public sector. So it's all about looking at the interests of individuals, record-keeping institutions, and, quote, society as a whole, and how to balance, you know, how we keep and retain and use people's information, which all seems extremely relevant today. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's some context. I guess one thought I had was that's the framing for the criminal activity of the episode, but it doesn't delve into why... It's a problem as opposed to bringing up the like, you may have never thought of this audience member in 1978. This is happening. It's not the crime they're investigating. The crime they're investigating is the possible murder of uh, Thule. It's what Thule was murdered over. But they even admit that they don't know if any of it is a crime. Well, and McGregor says, you know, to my knowledge, yeah. none of this is illegal. But it also seems so very shady. Right. And of course, it, it is clandestine. Like, that's the other bit about it, is that it, it's shady to the point where he uses blackmail mm-hmm. to uh, get county resources to hide it and whatnot. But again, it's not what Rockford and Brockelman are actually investigating it is mm-hmm. just the it is what Thule was investigating and even Thule wasn't investigating it for that reason he was just investigating it because of Al uh Stever um told was like has it out for this councilman so it's like right yeah I guess I think that what seems really relevant to today is less the existence of this because now we're past the Rubicon. Oh yeah. (laughs) But it's the, what, what creates the criminal behavior is the fact that there's so much money potentially at stake for someone to use this information in an unscrupulous manner. Yeah. Right. And that's what causes the problems that the fact that you can sell people's information for whatever purpose you want and that there's a demand for it. Um, that creates the conditions for for blackmail and murder and like, yeah. the other the other crimes. Yeah, and they even say like the 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 weird not weird, but the um one of the shady bits is that Interpol won't go get involved in it. 
Until until they can see that it works. Yeah. Uh, but some banks and a European country that they don't name. Right. Uh, but the, the report specifically is about 200 million Americans. Mm-hmm. So there's this like international espionage angle to it, too. Sure. That is yeah. just kind of put out there and then not touched because mm-hmm. that's not what our heroes are, are about in this in this particular case. There's also the thing of like in after two to three years, it won't matter. And I right. think that's also very prescient where it's like, yeah, once once this stuff is established and it's grown, it's grown roots into i don't know what a good metaphor is but i'm thinking of i mean this is essentially uh social media stuff right where it's like once everyone's on facebook like it doesn't matter how how terribly and unethically facebook starts behaving because now it's a platform and now people have their whole livelihoods built on being on facebook and you know what are you going to do like there's a <laughs> i want to say a rich history there's a rich history of of that what's the phrase uh Asking for forgiveness rather than permission mm-hmm. in uh, specifically in America, I'm sure worldwide, but like I'm thinking specifically of things like um, uh, in Wisconsin, they used to have I, I'm, they may still have, but like a law against privately owned prisons. And so mm-hmm. uh, a company comes and starts building a private prison and Wisconsin's like, wait, that's illegal. You can't own a private. And they're like, oh, it's not a private prison until they get it built. And then they're like, well, it's here. What are you going to do? Hmm. And then, oh, I guess we can't do anything because you already built it. You know, and that's <laughs> to to do something that's ripped from the headlines uh, in Illinois. Um, I just saw this last night. I don't know what the resolution is, but so there's been a, a, a pretty contested state Senate. I forget if it's the Senate or the state house, but whatever, a, a state representative of some kind um, where one of the contenders is this real piece of garbage Jim Oberweiss, um, I think Jim's his name, if you're in the Midwest, of the Oberweiss dairy <laughs> situation. Conglomerate. Yeah, they do like milk and ice cream and whatever. Anyway, he's a real right-wing, reactionary, mm-hmm. conservative kind of stuff. Anyway, so this guy, he's been in this House race or Senate race, the state race, and he narrowly lost, uh, you know, they've, they've officially finished all the ballot counting and everything, and he's lost his race. So they were having the like orientation to new members at this Capitol uh, earlier in the week. And he apparently just showed up and was like introducing himself to people and getting pictures and stuff. And so, and it's like, you, you lost the race. You yeah. weren't elected, but he's on this whole, like, well, we have to count all the legal votes, you know, oh, God. train. So the person who won is there, but he mm-hmm. still shows up and is like, oh, hey, everyone, I'm going to come join this Congress. You can't just show up and say you're part of the legislature. Yeah. But that's uh, the ultimate asking for, it's like, well, I'm already here. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? I don't know what the resolution of this is, obviously, at this point, but. Oh, that'd be so wonderful. Haul him out, like hauling Stever out from the city council meeting. Yes. Kicking and screaming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, um, this is this episode is long enough, so I think we yeah. can, we can <laughs> we wrap should. up, but. I guess it's interesting from the perspective of it's an issue episode because the entire framing of it is meant to highlight an issue, but the actual plot of it isn't that different from any other plot. So it doesn't feel like an issue episode in the episode necessarily. The issue of the plot is that murder is bad. Right. (laughs) I mean, like that's a pretty standard. Pretty straightforward. But yeah, definitely, definitely a good one. Yeah. Um, Feels a little more like a movie. So yeah, make some popcorn. Have a snack. And then maybe see if uh, you can track down any episodes of Richie Brockelman, Private Eye. And yeah. We'll see how that went for him. 
I am now even more excited for the next one because that one is a very con game episode. Oh, yeah. Maybe we'll take another year before we get to it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> but regardless of how long it takes us to get to that, mm-hmm. we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files. <laughs> Wah, 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 wah,